Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding, on air live, showing our faces, as long as I edited it the right way, uh, with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content online. Uh, best way to do that is to go to focuscompounding.com to get access to everything that we are doing in regards to Focus Compounding. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrewfocuscompounding.com. And you can get more information on it by going to the Invest With Us tab at focusedcompounding.com. So in today's podcast, we are going to jump right into what is going on in the market. Let me close my email so no one could see that. Um, let's pull this up. Did you... Seems like the market's been acting pretty crazy uh, lately, Jeff. And um, news came out yesterday. The Fed, they are going to raise the Fed funds rate 25 basis points uh, to a target range of 4.5%. To 4.75 percent, uh, that was expected by the market. I don't know if you listened to the press conference, Jeff, but to me, Powell came out pretty forceful and strong in talking about getting inflation back down to their two percent target. And then, you know, during the softball question session after his press release, uh, the market just completely took off. And I'm assuming that's because they're going to get to their restrictive uh, place here soon and not continue to raise interest rates. I mean, my understanding of the meeting was Powell talking about they're going to be higher for longer. I thought the market's reaction was uh, quite interesting. If you look at the yield curve, I mean, it it really didn't do much. Um, so I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts on the current market reaction? I mean, in a way, I'm kind of feeling like this current market is like, you know, summer of 2020 into early 2021 when we had just this huge speculative boom. Uh, but this time around, there's not going to be any handouts from the government and inflation is still at you know, multi-decade highs. So I'm just generally curious to hear your thoughts on what's going on currently in the market. Well, in the 2000 uh, bear market, there were things that happened like this. So, but normally other than markets like that, people wouldn't have had experience in markets where they go up this much and yet you're not in a new bull market. So I think people would expect that they've reached the bottom or something like that. Um, because it's the only time in the last, you know, 30 years or so that that things looked like they did. Now with uh, having as much moves up and yet you still continue to go down for a few years. I mean, do you think it's more of a, a bear market rally? I mean, I'm sure you saw Meta's move in the market up 23% today. And quite frankly, I didn't think their earnings were, you know, that crazy good. Uh, they authorized $40 billion in share buybacks. Uh, but nothing that I thought was, you know, exceptionally crazy. Um, Carvana, I mean, I have this written out 145 million of their 189 million shares outstanding traded today. 
One day that allegedly they they traded more shares than they have outstanding. You know, um, obviously I don't know how expensive it is to short Carvana and stuff, but obviously a lot of people could be short Carvana and there could be lots of options stuff. I think we've talked about that before. Um, crazy things like that. The, um, I believe the bonds were trading like it, it was basically in default, you know, like maybe they were trading at like 40% of, um, their face value or something, which would basically be like, it was already saying that they're um, defaulting. So um, you know, the, we had that right with bed, bath and beyond or the other mm -hmm. meme type things that when something is basically about to declare bankruptcy that people get interested in the stock, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you take 146.6 million shares traded today, the volume multiply it just by the share price for a, a rough value. I mean, that's over mm -hmm. the market cap. It's 2.08 billion for people looking at my calculator on the screen and I mean, what's their market cap? 1.4 billion. So, I mean, mm -hmm. pretty crazy amount of volume that's happening in these speculative stocks, which to your point is basically being priced for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does this remind you of past bear market rallies? Uh, no, not really, because I think it has an expectation for like a soft landing kind of thing. If you look I mean, one, there's a big disconnect, as you heard in the press conference, where Powell said, I'm not going to try to persuade anyone. The market thinks we're going to do one thing and we think we're going to do another thing. Um, so it's baking in stuff that the Fed says it's not going to do. Um, and so there's expectations for rate cuts uh, sooner. Yeah. Um, and it would be different that way, too, because if the economy did start expanding at those levels of unemployment, and that we might be at within this year and everything. Um, I don't know how far you could expand, right? So you want to have much of an expansion as part of the issue um, because you would quickly run into the issue of having inflation again, presumably. Because if, let's say unemployment's three and a half percent or something and they think it'll go to four and a half percent, they also think that you can't bring it down below about four and a half percent without causing inflation. That's why they're tar that's why they're saying it'll go up to something like four and a half percent. So the issue then is, can you really cut rates and all of that? Um, I don't think that it's a big deal about whether there is or isn't a recession and what the exact right percentage on the Fed funds is. I think their concern is probably the concern from the uh, period we talked about, 1969 to 1981, which is um, a series of recessions and a series of big cuts, in, quick cuts in rates to get uh, in reaction to the recession, which then causes more inflation next time around. And you keep having higher and higher levels of inflation each cycle. Um and so the market isn't crazy that way because the amount of cuts that you get sometimes when you enter a recession is is pretty fast and uh, large. You know, the cutting usually happens a lot faster than the interest rate increases. This time was unusual and then there was really rapid interest rate increases. And with Volcker, they once had really rapid interest rate increases, but actually they stopped targeting the Fed funds rate for that part of it, you know, officially. So that's how they kind of were able to achieve that. So normally the cuts are much faster and stuff. And so normally that's what people are kind of looking at that way. Uh, what you've seen, obviously, is all of the things that would benefit from a, a more um, the high, more speculative things, but also things that would benefit from a, an economy that doesn't go into recession or expands quickly after that or whatever, um, have gone up a lot more than other stocks. 
so the the kind of stuff we talked about with like consumer discretionary stuff and some of that was cheap too um like consumer staples was very expensive versus consumer discretionary i think we talked about that last year um you know so stocks like container store look cheap stocks like cinemark look cheap right whereas stocks of like walmart looked super expensive and the difference between walmart and container store is a perception that container store is tied to um a booming economy and stuff and walmart isn't so i guess if you look at walmart then are you saying that uh, it's it's pretty expensive where we currently are in the market? Yeah. So something like Walmart seems ridiculously expensive. Certain food things seem ridiculously expensive um, when you compare them to the things that are more sensitive to a cycle, right? Mm-hmm. So you take the things that are the least sensitive in their same category. Walmart's a retailer, other retailers. It seems really expensive versus other retailers. Um, and the things that are more sensitive to some of the other stuff uh, about where we are in a cycle seem like they're much cheaper, right? Than the things that aren't. How do you typically think about market cycles? Well, I don't usually think about them. I think it's useful to think about what things seem really overpriced and what things seem really underpriced and it changes in every cycle. So there's some similarities to things from 2000 to today, but there are some differences too. Um, there are some similarities to other periods like, I mean, economically, there's much more similarity to 2000 and to the early 90s and stuff, uh, recessions, than there is to the 2008 recession, 2007, 2008. Um, in that, right, you have a different situation financially. So, like, consumers are financially really flush, households. Um, banks, financials, generally, are really flush. But the non-financial companies are much more heavily not in as good a place and the government especially the federal government really in the united states is not but that's completely different than what you had in other times and so in some of those it's different every time right so some of those things are similar to like 2000 and some aren't there there's there's some stuff that i'd say is similar to 2000 the semiconductor stuff right so you have some things where the price on the stock is really high and the stock is probably going to go from growth to like no growth, you know, like it's just going to stop, like it's going to hit a brick wall. And that is stuff that happened that could happen this time in some tech things that we're talking about. And that is what happened in 2000. It's not just that they had ridiculous prices. They did, but they also weren't, weren't like the nifty 50. They were things that actually um, were very cyclical and dependent on a certain cycle to be able to grow as much as they did. And then their growth completely changed afterwards. Some we talk about that's not true. You know, we've talked about like Microsoft, not true. But for some of the others, it is very true that they they had very bad years in their actual business results afterwards. And that's the thing that's interesting when we look at like Meta, right? Mm-hmm. They went from a period of growing, like they were growing revenues by 30 to 40% to they were shrinking almost instantaneously. Um, Snap. Same thing, almost instantaneously. If you look at certain parts of the business, um, the e-commerce business, for instance, with Amazon, where you take out, if you try your best to take out things like advertising and um, you can take out cloud, uh, it looks like they went from growing regularly. Now, they were slowing down a little bit before COVID, but same thing. They were growing. You never had a, you never got a warning that they were going to grow at like 10% a year and then it was going to slow down. It was always double digits for their history. And then they went to, basically shrinking in real terms. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, Meta's fourth quarter in full year, 2022 results. And revenue went from 117.9 billion to 116.6 billion 
from 2001 to 2022. So yeah, I mean, that was uh negative 1%. Yeah. And uh, so it's just, it's, you know, that's not what happens with ad agencies generally. And it's not what happens with other sorts of media things that you see. Um, I talk about banks and things like that. I mean, never happens with them, right? That you have something that's fast growth and then suddenly it just stops like that. Um, so, so what is it? I mean, we can get, it's whether you want to call it reflexivity, whether you want to call it um, any of those sorts of things, it's driven by certain trends. One, they're trends that are very far away from the consumer, right? So some of these things are really far away from the consumer, like meta and all that. Remember their revenue isn't going up because more and more people are using the service more and more. It's going up because of advertising stuff, right? So it's advertising pricing based on advertising effectiveness, based on the willingness of, of companies to spend a lot of money. If they aren't willing to spend that money, then you're not going to see that happen. Um, things that are driven by CapEx by others, um, things that depend on others holding your inventory for you, right? So like that's what we talked about, semiconductor things. Like I've always said, you know, that will go from the biggest profits that you've ever had to you'll be losing money. And it'll happen instantaneously. And it's because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of one, these, some of these things are dependent more on companies that are close to them. So other companies that are in tech. So I think that is something that is underappreciated because we have some information on that, that suggests that's pretty strong, even in things like cloud and stuff. Um, so they're tech companies spending money on tech things. That's more than people might think. Um, and then on top of that, you have things like advertising stuff, CapEx things, which you can stop, you know, companies can stop. And the other thing is most of these business models for most of them, are based on being able to start and stop really easily because that's how they grew virally. So you'll see it stop much faster than would normally be the case. So for instance, people won't, it takes a very long time for people to cut cable. It even takes longer for people to stop relationships with advertising on networks and things like that. Once you go to this system where you're, whether it's buying things programmatically or you're doing things that you have a campaign that you're managing that you turn on and off at and decide on what the spending is and everything, it happens really fast. I mean, the same thing with these streaming things. If people choose to cancel, they'll cancel at a rate that they never would cable because you don't have to call anyone and tell them that you're canceling. You just go on there and say, pause my Netflix account or, you know, cancel. Oh, do you really want to leave? Yeah, I really want to leave, you know, whatever. And it takes two seconds and you're out of it and there's no real penalty for doing it or anything because that's how they got them in, in the first place. So I think, you know, some of that we'll see more rapidly um, but there's, but you know, Paramount and others have said like the, the advertising stuff has slowed down for them and they can see that. And the meta and some of those has happened faster, I think, uh, snap definitely. Um, so, you know, and some of them might be more marginal on the spend on that. Snapchat has just the craziest earnings stock movement every single quarter. So I think last uh, or yesterday when they reported after hours, it was down like, I don't know, 8%, 10%. And it looks like they finished up about 10% here today. Well, it's amazing how many people use it and, and how little it's monetized. So it's always a fascinating one for me that way. Why do you think by, that is? By, it's just the difficulty. I mean, um, search is, you know, a lot of it's like luck or whatever. I mean, it's not like Google's probably set out to build a great business model, but it happens that search is way better than anything else. So much better. So ha having a search engine that's used way less than having something that's used like Twitter or Snap is much more easy to monetize and to make a lot of money off of. Um, so people on some of these services are not 
necessarily in a in a situation where they're easy to monetize in a way that's going to make you a lot of money. But there should be ways of figuring that out, and some of them I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know how broadly there'll be a lot of ability to make money off of people through advertising for some of these things. I mean, a lot of it is the same sort of stuff. I mean, take Google search is a lot like classified type stuff. And obviously YouTube is just like video things. And those always had fine rates for advertising everything. So Google happens to be in businesses that it was easy to do that. I shouldn't say happens to be, I mean, like that was what it was from the beginning, but since then they've really been focused on being an advertising company and everything. Um, and I've said that about Meta because Meta, the part that's really impressive to me is not how big it got in terms of users and engagement with it and everything. That wasn't that hard to predict. Like that didn't seem outrageous from the time they went public to now. But to understand how much they would be making off advertising, how effective their advertising would be is the part that I would was not possible for me to understand at all. How much of their decline do you think is, uh, or you could attribute to TikTok taking market share? I think people are worried about that, but I also think that when you slow down your growth, then people start to look at the business and it's a big difference between whether it's a good business or not, how people react to it. Right. So, um, I'm sure that there is a slowdown in growth from things like that, but the basic issue with snap and Twitter both is that they don't generate a ton of revenue versus how much it costs to operate them or seems to cost. And so I mean, they've basically saturated their markets, right? Mm -hmm. And yet they they don't make much money. They don't make any money, but they they don't make even much revenue because things like search are, are much better for that. It just you think about you say they don't make money, right? I mean, how much of mm -hmm. that really comes from just that bloated cost structure of people that really you don't need? I mean, I just did a quick Google search to get the actual number, and it looks like I mean, what Elon laid off. He laid off half of Twitter, 7,500 employees yeah. company-wide, you know? So it's like, gosh, what were all those people doing? And especially if this company could be more efficient or operate without those individuals, what the heck was happening before? Yeah. How is this different? You said you listed some similarities from the 2000 era. What are some differences? Uh, well, a bad difference is that it's much, much harder to find smaller stocks that are cheap. So stocks generally overall are much more expensive. And it's because the length of time of high valuations lasted for much, much longer. So the period of rising in high valuations for U.S. stocks from small to large and everything in the dot-com boom was a brief period of time. It's not noticeable at all before like 1996. Starting in 1996, you start to see some things that it's getting too expensive. Uh, different stocks, different things. Um, and then it only goes for a few years. This time you had a whole decade of things getting consistently more expensive. Uh, and so that was a big, big part of it. And so it's much harder to find things. It's much worse for me. It's much worse for value investors generally. It wasn't that hard back then because there was huge differences between large and small stocks in terms of valuations. Um, like when they show data on this, they're doing things like uh, S and P 500 versus certain Russell things, which are really like mid cap type things. I would call them, you know, they're comparing it to like small cap, but they're very large small cap companies, um, for micro cap companies and things in very boring industries. It was really cheap back then. There was no, there was no bubble at all for buying the stuff that I would buy. Or, I mean, if it was like Buffett back in the 1950s, 1960s, he could have just gone through the 1990s without a problem. If his fund was the size that it was back then. For value investors, there was just no issue. For very large value investors, it was an issue because very large stocks generally, whether value, growth, whatever, were expensive. But um, for small companies 
boring industries, old line things. It was really, it was really great. It was a lot like the 1920s that way in that the leading companies were the ones that got really overvalued as stocks. So within each industry, people always wanted to buy that one leader. There was that one company that they talked about and they didn't talk about the ones that were third, fourth, fifth in the industry, the secondary companies. So that's how I'm able to talk about things like, um, whether it's Activision, Village Supermarket, J&J Snack Foods, all that stuff. You could look at anything today that's trying to find the same categories and stuff. It's not that cheap. So there's just a general overvaluation that's much more pervasive this time. Um, and that's, you know, maybe because of monetary policy and stuff. There wasn't loose monetary policy in the 1990s for a long period of time. And there was this time. So how do you sort of taking that backdrop invest today? I mean, I hate to say it, but is it the whole, this time it's different because you have the whole monetary effect of loose money and more government intervention with the financial markets. How do you think about that? I mean, do you ever think about maybe those days are gone forever because now there's more participants, there's government intervention, mm. stuff like that? It could be. I mean, uh, there's been higher values than historically for a long time now. So on average, since 1996 to today, you have higher prices than you did before. And that wasn't really true before. There, although people talked about it as there was a trend over time, there really wasn't. It's only in that period that you notice it. So, um, however, you had a bubble and then ever since then you've had monetary policy that would be considered loose, right? Um, really you briefly had some tightening and stuff a couple times, but that's it. So the whole period since then has been pretty loose. So since the dot-com bust, then the housing bust and financial crisis, then COVID and all that, it, you've had consistently low, um, competition in terms of yields offered and other things. So it's possible that that is one of the reasons for it. It's hard to know. Um, but, you know, it's easy to calculate in that, look, if you, it may mean that things don't go down in the future, right? If, if, that, if it stays that way, but it, it doesn't give you any better returns. Um, higher prices just result in lower future returns no matter what. So, I mean, you can have lower future returns over a very long period of time, and maybe you should buy and accept those returns if that's the case. Um, but it, it's just not going to help, um, you get better returns in the future. So you can't at one hand say like now is different mm -hmm. and yet you'll have returns like people had in the 20th century. You won't have returns like people got in the 1900s in stocks. You'll have returns that are closer to what they got in bonds in the 1900s. If, if, if prices stay this high. What about like the development of more quant strategies and the amount of capital that has flown into that where they you know track these factors with you know computers um and trade stuff just quicker than anybody else could i mean do you think that could have an effect on price discovery and valuation in the markets in general i mean when you're trying to compete with renaissance technology i mean sometimes i'll even see them in in micro cap land or small cap land oh no they're in a lot of things that we own yeah but they in a tiny, tiny way, you know, I mean, not tiny for the stock necessarily, but tiny for them. Um, yeah, it's possible that people have caught on to that, but people have caught on to net net things in the past. I mean, it always changes how you make money. There's no strategy that's the same for all times. That's kind of my point about knowing where you are in the market cycle is that it's not just the same cycle every time. There's just what you're paying attention more is what things are ridiculously overvalued, what things are really cheap. Um, 
the thing that was interesting when I was investing early on is that it didn't take a lot of judgment to be able to um, make some very common sense investments that worked out really well. Because what you're saying is that some of those things were cheap, but they were, it was possible to kind of tell that some were higher value than others and all that. I, I don't know about the quant things. It'll just change it. You know, it, it's just like if you're in a game where there's different players with different strategies, then to some extent, the strategy that you pick is going to be different. So if they focus too much on quantitative things, then you can take advantage of that by focusing more on certain qualitative things and, and whatever else. Um, so I, you know, I, it, it will depend, but the makeup of who's in the market does change all the time. And it's been changing all the time. I mean, I don't know that it's a bigger change now than it was like over Buffett's career or Graham's career, you know, because remember in the 1920s, there was no institutional investment from that period on. And for most of Buffett's early career, there was minimal institutional investment. By the time I started investing, you had institutional investment at about the levels that it is now. It wasn't quantitatively driven and stuff, and there wasn't as much indexing and all that, but it was very heavy in that in terms of retail investors, except for that period in the late 90s, um, didn't make up a very big part of the market. Whereas in the early days that you're talking about with uh, that you're looking at with Graham and his strategies, it's all against retail investors. There's there's There aren't institutions investing at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more on Graham. I wanted to bring this up because I thought this was an interesting tweet by Dividend Growth Investor. Um, he said, the best investors in the world follow a multi-strategy approach. This is rarely discussed on Twitter for some reason. And he kind of makes a good point, right? He talks about Buffett. He focused on, you know, controls, uh, generals. Uh, he said private owner, uh, generals relatively undervalued, and then workout positions. Uh, ben Graham, he focused on arbitrages. Uh, liquidations, related hedges, net current asset value bargains. And he said they also did large scale control acquisitions. Yep. So I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on like a multi-strategy approach using this value framework and how you kind of think about it, right? Because you've had some evolution in your own investing. Mm -hmm. If you read a lot of your old write-ups from circa 2005 to, I don't know, onward right for a long time mm -hmm. at least 10 years it was all about net nets and has that just changed because the market is different now do you still look at a bunch of different situations do you think investors should have multiple strategies in their toolkit what are your thoughts on that yeah i mean there's a difference between sort of principles and strategies i guess and tactics right so um the like for one of the reasons for the talking a lot about net nets in the past and not now, it's the number of net nets is probably down about 95% or so, I would guess. Um, different ways that I measured it, you know, looking back at 2010, so that avoids the fact that like in 2009, it would really spike. So you skip that year because it would be absurdly high. But I would say that the number of net nets that I would measure, which is a little different than how other people do it because I eliminate a few things, in the U.S. Um, was probably, yeah, well, 20 times what it is now at least. Like I think... I looked and after going through a list and then sorting through it myself, the things that I would classify as actual net nets would be like five stocks, right? So it turned up a lot more than that. And this was before the market went up. This was at the, the end of last year. So um, there are other stocks that turn up, but they're like biotech that lost money or they're frauds or something like that, which I would eliminate, which Graham would eliminate, which Buffett would eliminate. You know, no one who buys net nets would focus on those things. So things that actually historically were profitable and were real businesses that aren't new. Um, there's only a handful of them. So that's one reason, right? Um, because the issue, it isn't like you can't buy enough of them. 
the issue is selectivity um, and, and the like degree to which, see, if there's only five net nets, let's say, and there were 120 or something, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, um, you, what's happening is why are they net nets? So the potential is that they're much worse things in that uh, that population that you're, you're left with, right? So that's what happens. And, and so you have a much better population of net nets in years in which there are a large number of them. Um, in terms of strategies, yeah, I think that the things they're talking about, controls, general private owner, general relatively undervalued workout, all that stuff is, is good to have a mix of those things. But they have to be things that actually work. So most people have strategies that don't work, right? They use some strategies that actually don't um, work over time. There's very, very few strategies that actually work over time. And it's a good idea to apply those things. Um, so that's why I love the book, um, A Man for All Markets, because mm -hmm. it's a different sort of thing. But he only focused on approaches that were going to work all the time. Uh, Graham, for instance, got rid of uh, long-short pairs, right? So, like, they looked into that and decided that shorting didn't help them. Only related hedges helped. And part of that was looking and seeing how good the returns were in net nets and in arbitrage, that they were so good and so easy to see that they were so consistently good. Um, so yeah, I think things like net nets, that's, that's why I talk about them because it's proven to an extent beyond anything else in my experience. Um, you know, nearly total success rate in terms of not having losses and net nets, um, very high returns, uh, same sort of thing though, in certain types of doing arbitrage, but then if people try to apply arbitrage all the time, it won't work. But again, with arbitrage things, very few cases of any losses, the high returns, high annualized returns bunch of different cases over a long period of time. So those obviously work out um, as strategies, but they're fairly narrow in terms of what things I'm talking about of doing them. We've talked about arbitrage before. The things I'm talking about are situations in which you believe that the company being taken over is worth more than the offer price, mm -hmm. right? That's the only kind that I'm talking about. And that is a fairly small part of what arbitrage is generally like in terms of the availability of it. So large funds and stuff couldn't do that. And any fund that said it was always in arbitrage couldn't do it. And you might even have plenty of years where you don't have anything to do. Um, but you, you did very well if you did those, if you did like the Hunter Douglas and all those things. And even if you did things like Cambria that didn't, you know, you got a little premium over it, that's fine. And it doesn't, isn't related to the market. So, um, but most people I'd say try to do too many different strategies, a lot of which don't work. So, I think there's, I like diversification and stuff as long as each thing you're doing on its individual basis works out, um, that it makes sense, right? So I don't believe in any sort of diversification that's going to have worse returns than the market or something like that. And some of these things would. Um, so I think like, uh, like the one that's tricky is Buffett has generals relatively undervalued, which is what he expanded into when he couldn't do the other ones. Um, and that worked out for him, but you know, that's tough because if you expand that too much, it doesn't work out. So are you talking like back testing a strategy and being like, okay, over time, this makes money. And then you're going to sort of pick your spots within that framework or within that strategy. Is that what you're talking about doing when you say most people employ strategies that just simply do not work? Yeah. I mean, principles of what we know is likely to work. So it's a combination of your own experience doing it it making good common sense and possibly it working in back tests and then how well it works in those back tests, for instance. So do things work on average in a lot of, so net nets, for instance, work basically being tested in lots of different 
uh, markets around the world. If you had a test and it didn't work in a lot of different markets around the world, then I'd be skeptical about that approach, right? Um, most backtest things I'm kind of skeptical of because I don't think they're testing really the right stuff for how someone would actually invest. But the net net ones are fine. Um, and the the thing that I would talk about with people when they ask, like, should I do, a lot of times people ask, should I do a small investment size? They want to expand it to something else. And so they would want to do a smaller position in something that they normally do in something that's a little bit different. And what I always say is like, well, one th thing you want to think about is not does this specific case work out on average, but what exactly are you doing in sort of a general approach? And then what's kind of the base uh, rate that you're going to get on that if you do this kind of approach all the time? So for instance, when they ask for the low, um, like a lower percentage that they should invest in, right? It's almost always a company they know less about. And so they're saying, I think it's cheap on a quantitative basis. I know less about it. It's usually um, has a higher beta, right? Um, and it sometimes has higher financial leverage, certainly more um, variation in like operating results and stuff like that. That's almost always what they suggest. And it could work out. Um, you'd have to kind of look at it and kind of measure how that would work out, but it, it depends on how you define it because sometimes it's a little bit dangerous that way. So, um, so there's certain ones that I would avoid, you know, and like the one that I mentioned to people to avoid is situations in which I think that they're at an informational disadvantage to others. So a couple of different people brought me things saying that they want to buy this thing in, um, Europe in which someone associated with it, it has been associated in the past with like frauds and stuff since these aren't European investors, they're not from the country that it's in. They don't know anything about the person and everything. I think that that as a, while that particular investment might work out, I think it's kind of dangerous to go into markets where the issue is the people involved and you know that you know less about them than many of the people trading the stock. So that's what I mean about like, maybe you avoid that group. Mm. Um, and then also it's just like how good you are investing in a category versus others. Um, I find net nets to be pretty easy because all you have to do is just make a judgment about the business, about it being a decent business and stuff. And so it's a, just a category that I like that kind of investing. And I like my odds against other people and being better able to judge that a business is fairly decent versus um, others. There's other things I'm not good at and stuff, but I think that that one's probably a stronger type skill for me versus the people I'd be buying from. Why do you think the opportunity set has declined by 90%? I mean, so you started investing people who had followed Buffett knew about net nets as well. Why do you think it just declined over the past, you know, 20 years or whatever, 15, 20 years? Sarbanes-Oxley was a huge part of it. Um, private equity, some of it, a mm. lot of the companies aren't public. So um, it may happen more in the future because we did have more companies going public. Mm -hmm. Some of them were questionable companies and everything, but there's been fewer, you have to have a large population of companies go public in certain years to end up many years later with a large population that could be net nets. Like the reason why you have a lot in Japan, for instance, um, is that they actually have a lot of public companies versus, and a lot of smaller public companies versus sort of the size of their economy and everything. And the U S did at one time, but so for, I, I would guess from the time I started investing to now, at least in the kinds of companies I would focus on the size, it's been more than a 50% decrease in the number that are public. Um, yeah. Is a lot of that because of like private equity and venture capital? I mean, you, you hear all the time in news, oh, they're doing their series, whatever at a two, three, four, five, ten, fifteen, twenty billion $20 billion valuation where historically they would go public. Yeah. 
It could be. It also could be a lack of interest in taking smaller companies public in the sorts of industries that they're in. There are fewer companies that are public. Um, and so a change in what kinds of companies have gone public. Uh, you know, you also have many public companies that lose a lot of money. And so it would never be net nets. Um, so it's a combination of those things. But yeah, um, a lot, obviously, even the ones that we find that are not SEC filing and stuff, it's because they they stopped with the Sarbanes-Oxley and some of the others are... Um, yeah, I mean, th there's plenty that were... That, you know, um, they eventually leave public markets and so you don't have them anymore. Because um, you need the stock to be cheap enough, but you also need the stock to be decent enough because remember, things like Carvana or something can't ever be a net-net because the, they're using financial leverage because the basic the way that the business is working. I mean, the, the net net thing isn't just that it's cheap. It has to have more current assets and total liabilities and somewhat quite a bit more. And the way that you have that generally is you had to have um, generated not necessarily cash, but at least cash inventory receivables versus a small amount of total liabilities. And so you're not going to get that with a lot of businesses today. Yeah. I saw somebody uh, post their net net portfolio. It was probably, I don't know, 20, different companies and I went through one by one and I think if I had to put a number on it maybe 17 or 18 out of the 20 were based in China mm -hmm. yeah and, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're frauds or anything because they don't necessarily I mean the issue with the Chinese ones are things listed in the US that were Chinese and everything mm -hmm. um, but the yeah um, so I mean there's some things that are close to being net nets um, I think in the last month or something they've moved away from being them but uh, the ones that I can think of, let's see, um, I believe Herco, if you can check that one, was close to a net net not that long ago. How do you spell that? H-U-R-C-O. Herco companies. Machinery. Go. So it's mm -hmm. a $187 million market cap. They get their yeah. balance sheet. Yeah, it's probably right in that territory. You Go to quarterly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think on net net screens, Stratic will show up as net net. However, I believe it's not a net net. Um, it has uh, it has to do with how it's being consolidated and stuff. I think it's a low price uh, versus the total size of the business and everything. But it's part of a partnership with companies in Europe and Asia, and so they're consolidating some of them on their balance sheet and stuff. Um, but so that's one, and and that at other times has been close to a net net. Um, so. And then, let's see. Uh, there, there are a couple other ones that I, I noticed that are were close at the end of last year, um, and, and weren't bad businesses necessarily. Some of them have issues with them, but the other thing that you can see with these is obviously being a manufacturer is helpful for showing up as a net net. Mm -hmm. um, net nets are usually manufacturers. That makes the most sense. If you're a service business or something like that, it wouldn't make sense that you'd be a net net. And um, retailers, it's tricky. A lot of times I wouldn't consider them a net-net anyway. Um, so that's usually it. And then obviously, um, in addition to net-nets, you know, you do have financial companies that trade below book or real estate things or something like that. And that's much the same thing. It's not exactly the same thing, but that's the strategy update of like Marty Whitman and, and people like that. But also it's just, you know, whether it's Buffett or Graham or whatever, they were also willing to buy those things. It's just a very simple test, the net net test, but it's not magical in that other ways of finding things that are trading below the liquidation value aren't also um, 
cheap, you know. Uh, I mean, one thing to remember is that, like, the when we talk about the car dealers and stuff, that's why we bought them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Virtu and stuff. It's, it's very close when we bought it to being, uh, I mean, to being cheap versus liquidation value. Mm-hmm. And so people ask about price to book and stuff, but it's different. Price to book on a car dealer where it's inventory and um, property and stuff. Uh, and then they don't, they weren't at the time borrowing a lot against their used cars and stuff. Whereas most dealers are, you know, right up to the max that they can borrow on those things. Um, that that's what makes them cheap. And so that's the whole logic of the net net thing. And yeah, and it's just a broader thing about businesses. Basically what's happening in the U S right now, right? When I say stocks are expensive, right? Is they are priced above what people would pay to buy all of them. Whereas when I say stocks are cheap, that means they're selling for less than someone would pay to buy all of it in like a private deal. So when public markets are pricing things below private markets, uh, then stocks are cheap. And when they're pricing them above, then they're expensive. There are lots of companies that the only reason they're priced that way is because they're in a public market. No one believes that AMC would be priced that way in (laughs) private deals, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone believed that about Carvana. Um, there are a lot of companies like that. A lot of things that are down 90% or something are because they had valuations that only make sense in a po- from a public market perspective. And they're trading on some sort of valuation that's different, whatever it is, than what would ever be discussed in a deal to acquire the whole company or something, right? Like when someone writes up AMC, I never hear them say, here's what AMC's enterprise value is versus the number of screens it has in the US. And here's how much CapEx I think you'd have to put into those screens and to fix and stuff. But that's what their competitors would think. That's what anyone looking to buy pieces of it would think, each theater and stuff. There'd be a price per screen and there'd be valuation based on that stuff. Um, so so sometimes you have banks, insurers, whatever, uh, real estate things that can trade below that. And we've mentioned those. And so those fall in the same category. Um, a lot of those obviously are that the people don't see that there's a possible catalyst. That is part of it too. Remember that some net nets and others, usually it's not net nets, but some stocks um, are cheap, but they can't have a catalyst because someone controls them and has takeover protection, right? So they can't be taken out. And those companies have a tendency to either end up being taken over because the, the fences don't work or they sell out or whatever, or companies adopt them and they stay public. And so they just aren't a possible uh, target that way. So at certain times there were more net nets because takeover defenses were more common. When I was starting out investing, there were far, far, far more companies in the U S small companies, especially, but just generally that had takeover defenses. Now, they were going to lower those takeover defenses and get rid of them and stuff. But what happened in the 80s and into the 90s is a lot of companies started normally adopting takeover defenses, poison pills and things being very regular, staggered boards, whatever. Um, And then they stayed public for a long time and only eventually got rid of those defenses. That makes it so that there's more net nets for longer because otherwise, obviously, people would make a run at these net nets and try to push people out and whatever, because, you know, in the United States, without those kinds of takeover defenses and everything, you're small enough that a lot of funds could go after you and everything. Um, so that's another reason why it changed. I mean, I would think that declined by probably 80%, I would guess. At one point, I don't know if it's one out of every five, one out of every four companies, you know, there was something like that probably that had significant takeover defenses in the United States. And now it's very rare. Are there any strategies from a man for all markets that he employed that you think would be good to employ in today's market? 
well, no, not exactly. Um, I mean, he did some things with warrants. You and I have talked off the podcast about that sometimes. Sometimes I think that some warrants are mispriced and everything, and I, I've seen situations where I think they're significantly mispriced. Um, usually I think it's because people are, like, um, overly... Whether I don't know if it's overly computerizing things, overly formalizing things, that they're basically plugging information about a stock instead of thinking more broadly about what volatility is going to be because, say, the stock, for instance, depends entirely on a commodity or whatever, then the past history of the stock that you have, especially if it's not very long and stuff and things like that, isn't the best way to measure what the likely future volatility is. And that's a very important thing on a warrant that goes at five years or something. So um, that was a big part of what he did. The other thing that he does talk at the end about like doing um, uh, bank conversions from being um, that the company is going um, public from that depositors could you could deposit money in them and then you could get shares. Mm -hmm. So obviously that is a strategy that's just common to a lot of other things in that it's kind of a strategy that will make you money on average, you know, and you aren't taking um, any sort of weird risks that way. And it's also something where he's willing to do all these things that people weren't even having markets in it. You know, he was using strategies that people weren't really thinking of as strategies of what to do. Something where you had an edge, you know, that concept of edge is really key to what he did. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it's almost like a, an information edge, right? Informational edge. Uh, it's almost, he's taking the volatility of the market out of his strategy because it's so different than, um, just a typical buy equity strategy. Yeah, so that's part of it is having an edge. Um, the other part is also just the willingness to actually do it. So a lot of people weren't willing to do these things um, for different reasons. Like, so with the warrants things and stuff, one of the things that you have with that is obviously um, it attracts some speculative type things. And so having a value investing type approach to certain things is less common that people are going to do it. Um, and then the extra work they had to do by actually going to the banks and making the deposits and all that kind of stuff to do those. It's similar to like when I invest in Japan and stuff. The reason why those exist to a certain extent is because all the people who know about them in the U.S. don't actually invest in them. So they know about them, they talk about them, whatever, but they won't actually just invest, even if it's relatively simple. So more on this multi-strategy approach to investing, what are some strategies that you think would be your tools and your toolkit. So obviously investing in undervalued stocks, you still look at spinoffs, even though there haven't been really too many good ones over the past couple of years. You still look at net nets, even though they're kind of hard to come by. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, let's see what sort of things have worked. I mean, the private market value one is the one that works the best. So I'd say of everything, the private market value is sort of the bedrock principle and makes the most sense. And everything else is sort of tactics on that. So even things like arbitrage, what makes the most sense is just ignoring the issues of like what the possibilities are that it's going to close and how you hedge it and whatever. And just worrying about is this trading for less than a private market value of what it uh, would go for. Um, the, that's what net nets are is because you know that they're below their liquidation value that way. I can't really think of lots of strategies other than private market value that like have a lot of different ways of looking into them. Uh, a lot of different ways of, of uh, doing variations on them. Uh, I don't know that there's as many ways to make money in markets as people think. I don't believe in as many factors, for instance, as people say there are. Like, um, I think we've talked about this. I don't believe that there's any size factor. Meaning so, like the, the type of well, size of companies you're focusing on? 
Right, and we invest in small companies, but I don't believe that there's any tendency for small companies to outperform large companies. I think it's it's things and mistakes in measuring it that you know is causing that. I think there's a huge difference between popular and unpopular companies. That's hard to measure, though. What? How exactly do you define that? But we've talked about that. So buying something that I mean, if you want one strategy that works, the most the best one is always find categories in which you buy things that are less popular than things that are more popular, in which the two are comparable, right? So whether you're doing arbitrage or whether you're buying net nets or whatever, what is the one that people are least interested in? What's the one they're most interested in? Focus on the least interested and not on the most interested, right? Um, yeah, with the size thing, I mean, part of it is like we invest in small companies versus big and everything. I, I think there's mistakes in like measure, comparing them. For instance, small companies that have the same financial results as large companies are actually much better. I mean, that's common sense. So the quality of the small companies and their likely future growth is much higher because if you have a company that's the size of, um, a, let's say you have a bank the size of Frost and you have a bank that's uh, 1 100th the size of Frost and they have the same return on assets, the 1 100th bank is obviously much, much better. I mean, that's clear because of the scale things. Mm -hmm. And so there's all sorts of things like that. If they're, if they're comparable, a smaller company that's comparable to a larger company is much better than it. And I think that... Like, I don't know that that is any sort of uh, thing that actually works. The There's, you know, things that are cheaper, things that yield stuff, things that are going up in price. That seems to be the things that work, um, like, across all markets and stuff. So I don't know that there's a ton of different factors beyond that kind of stuff. What's the most unique strategy someone has ever brought to you? Is there anything that sticks out? Um, yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, there's some elaborate strategies that people have and stuff, you know? So, um, I mean, there are differences in terms of like how long you might hold something and whether you might trade things and stuff like that. So if you talk about that as different strategies, I mean, that's interesting. As in like trading stuff on a short-term basis? I think you could buy and sell the same stock over and over again sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I think on a value basis, not on the technical type basis, you know? And people don't necessarily talk about that a lot. So you could buy a stock, it doubles, you sell half of it, it drops down by half, you buy it. You know, there are certain stocks of the kind we're talking about where that will work. You know, the things that are cheap versus the liquidation value that are whatever. So a stock can be flat over a long period of time, but you can make money on it the same, like in a Bang Ram type way. So just because uh, if we talk about Maui line and pineapple or something, and it doesn't go up over a 15 year period. doesn't mean that some people can't make money on it because sometimes it gets a lot cheaper than at other points in its history. You know, um, it, those stocks may not be all that volatile, but they may be a sort of volatility that you can actually predict versus super volatile companies. There's not a lot there in terms of the assets or, you know, how cheap they are uh, to being able to actually define, you know, where you should buy and where you should sell. And so I think a lot of the bank Graham Peter Kundle stuff is like that, that, you know, they actually sell over time. Yeah. I'd love to see what Buffett did in his PA over the years. Well, yeah. So some of that is... Mm. It, that's interesting. There are other things that you could do. You could try to time cycles. And I mean, I think Peter Lynch's book is the best in listing like, like Peter Lynch's book is the most practical that I've ever read. Um, yeah. Which book? Because was he breaks down the categories of uh, one up one. Up, I've read, I mean, both of them are good, but one up on wall street's fine. People can read that. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, so like talking about turnarounds, um, 
talking about cyclicals, mm -hmm. fast growing companies, slower growing ones, whatever. His is the best, most practical one of what like what we'd really do and everything is a lot closer to Peter Lynch than people might think. And his was about calling as many people as possible, seeing what was happening, buying in when the story was good, selling when it wasn't good. And when I say the story, I mean the things that were actually going on with the company, not what Wall Street people were saying and thinking about and stuff. Um, so his was a re is a really good example of how it really works. Um, a lot of it's more common sense than people think. I mean, it's almost all more common sense than people think. And so I think that is a really good book for people to read because it doesn't get into all this stuff about the, whether it's the quantitative things or whatever. It's just figuring out um, by talking to people what's cheap and what isn't and everything, you know, and um, and then buying when the situation is good or getting better. You know, he's willing to buy things, but willing to buy anything if it's cheap enough and if it's going in the right direction. Uh, that business, not as a stock, didn't care about, you know, the technicals of the stock, but, you know, would buy something where it might not sound like a good business, but it was going to get better in the future. Um, and then watching everything that way. So I think that that his, if you want to know a bunch of different things that might work, his approach might, but his approach is based a lot on having an information advantage, mm -hmm. which is actually talking to all these people in the same industry to figure out what's going on with the industry, then acting on it, going everywhere to find all this stuff, focusing deeply on the individual companies and the industries and even small industries and things. So um, instead of big macro type things, he has no concern about what macro things are, but he's very concerned about, oh, is New England banking getting better or worse? Oh, are motels getting better or worse? Whatever. Um, and knowing more about that than anybody else. Sometimes I wonder if these guys focused more or had an understanding more of like the macro backdrop than they lead on. Um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. It doesn't seem like they're very good at calling the macro things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to call any macro things if you get the industry things right. And the industry things might not have all that much to do with the macro things, you know? So that's the stuff to be careful about, I guess. Um, I think Buffett has a good understanding of industry economics, um, but I don't know that he has a good understanding of macroeconomics. I mean, so like his investment in Occidental Petroleum, right? Yeah, that's, that's industry economics. Do you think he had a top-down view with that? I don't think oil is very macro-driven at all. I mean, people may disagree with me, but uh, if anything, actually, the cycles in, in like oil and financial seem to be opposite of each other. And oil often tops out at levels that are the are bad for the uh, overall economy, right? Um, so you would have to know other things besides just the kind of the macro stuff, right? Mm. Um, I think that, yeah. Um, it, it's helpful to know, I mean, it's helpful to pay attention. I think it's helpful to be aware of, I don't know if we want to call the macro things or whatever, but to be aware of where we are in an industry and in terms of if demand or supply is extremely unusual or something. Um, and I think he's very good at that. I mean, he knew homes were overvalued, mm -hmm. right? He even talked about that, right? Um, he knew about the financial weapons of mass destruction, right? Um, but made lots of mistakes and things because, you know, further away from stuff, he wouldn't understand it necessarily as well. Um, yeah. So I, th I think it's helpful to understand particular industries, but I don't know about the macro stuff, because how well does that exactly translate into different things? I mean, let's say you knew a lot about macro things. I mean, oil is the same price it was however long ago, and natural gas is down what? So is it helpful to know a lot about natural gas and oil, or is it helpful to know a lot about the macro things? Mm -hmm. 
Because if macro is so useful, why is it a huge disconnect even between two things that are fairly close that way? Um, yeah. And same things like the macro things when people talk about banks and things. Even if they were able to predict the macro things, that's fine. But unless you have a strong understanding of the bank's exact position that way, you would be completely wrong in terms of what you would own versus what would be good versus what would be bad. Um insurance things the same way people talk about oh i should buy insurance or whatever and at one point out well like it depends on what kind of insurance and what they go in completely different directions depending on what they're doing what their industry is like and all that um so i i don't know how much the macro stuff would help um investors like buffett picking out particular stocks that way but yeah i mean those are occidental and chevron are straight up bets on oil but more so like uh from a capital allocation perspective we spoke about occidental a bunch last year how it was going to be all about capital allocation going forward for them. Yeah, well, Buffett's investing from what you know about commodities and things like that seems to be very heavily based on looking at supply and demand type things and looking at projections for that, especially what the levels of inventories and things like that are now and just seeing a discrepancy that he thinks he can take advantage of. Um, I think that that is what he's probably looking at. And there's tons of information about stuff um, with oil, for instance, that would show that it's not really, that the responsiveness to higher prices hasn't been extreme um, in terms of uh, increasing production and all of that. So there's other things that, you know, um, are probably different now than there have been in the past. So, and he would be aware of those things. But that's more like looking at car loadings and stuff like that. I mean, that's a really idea about the industry mm -hmm. and what's going on there that is more than just the macro sort of thing sure all right we could jump into this week's listener emails you can email focuscompounding at gmail.com and we will pull um some emails every single show and go over it on the podcast you could send us your portfolio you could ask general investing questions just basically whatever comes to mind related to investing and I will anonymously pull it for the show and we'll go over it. So the first question is someone asked Jeff, how do you guys think through a business you were wrong about, but also believe the market has overpunished? For example, the original thesis was, I think the business can grow at a 7% CAGR, fast forward a year and growth has been flat, but the stock is down 20%. Do you double down because the long-term thesis is still in play? hold until the business starts performing to expectations or sell because the original thesis is showing signs of cracks. I'm sure there's no one size fits all answer here, but would love to hear your insights and appreciate the content you put out. Sell. So you would sell. Yeah. I mean, he says, says something that's a little, there's some color in terms of like, I'd have to ask about to know exactly what it's meant here because fast forward a year and growth has been flat um, because the, do you double down because the long-term thesis is still in play? Well, yeah, you would, but then why was growth? Why were you expecting 7% growth and it didn't happen? I, I don't really look at the financials, right? It depends on exactly what I'm think is going to happen. And then what signs I would have that that isn't happening. Uh, and that would worry me more, Right. Um, so I would never be like, it didn't grow and I expected it to grow, but it, for one year, you know, um, but there could be signs of something happening within a year that did worry me. And then I would, um, sell. So, I mean, if it was off by 7%, yeah, 
but you know, I don't invest in a lot of companies where you necessarily be off by 7%, right? So that's part of it. Um, it would be hard to tell because this is where we're talking about the cycle and all that kind of stuff. Maybe I'm, you know, you can't just look at top line numbers or anything like that because maybe you're misjudging the cycle and all that. What, what I would say is things like, like here's like when I mentioned Amazon or something, right? Or meta or whatever, those things are severe in that you can compare them to things that are offline or other advertising, take other advertising things, right? So other advertising things were up big when they were down, like something went horribly wrong there. Now, maybe it was just privacy changes with Apple or whatever, maybe it was things that are supposed to, but something very specific happened to some of those companies, but you know, let's take Meta for instance, that is very specific to them and was not something that was the overall advertising industry. Now, if the overall advertising industry didn't grow the way I thought, then that's not necessarily the case. You know, I, I might feel differently. Um, it, you know, so who knows? Um, I stuck for a while in Omnicom when it was lower coming out of 2009 than I thought it would be over time because nominal GDP growth was lower than I thought. Um, so that's not as big an issue. We went over FICO. It was slightly less than I would have expected. The stock did better than I expected, but the growth and stuff was worse than I expected. Again, those are macro things though, right? Like if I, the nominal GDP was just weaker, there was less inflation and less growth overall coming out of the financial crisis than maybe I would have plugged in. Um, so in that case, I wouldn't worry that much about it, but if they were losing market share and things that I wasn't expecting, then I would care a lot about it. If, if they were cutting prices or whatever, and I would expect them not to do that, um, diversification usually sell that really fast. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it depends, but there's certain things where I'd sell pretty fast if I saw things that were different than I expected. Yeah. And I'm curious so, what caused yeah. that. 0% growth, right? And what has the business historically looked like? Was he projecting 7%, which was pie in the sky or pretty aggressive? Where are we at in the cycle? Stuff like that. Yeah. But see, if you're investing in certain kinds of companies, right, then not having 7% growth could be really common just because the industry didn't grow. You need to understand the industry. You need to understand how they did versus that. Who are their customers? What What's the breakdown in terms of price versus mix and volume and things like that? What happened? Try to talk to people. Try to figure it out. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, generally I would sell. Yeah. I mean, there's some that are very extreme. And so I didn't sell because they were so cheap versus, uh, so I was very wrong about it, but they were very cheap. Um, they were so cheap that you, that I couldn't justify selling because the math just, if they survived and stuff that they, they would go up a lot. So there's some cases where I would hold on if it was super, super cheap, but generally, yes, I would sell. I wonder what the multiple he paid was if, you know, the stock being flat caused a 20% down move in the stock. Was it already a cheap stock? Was it a high multiple stock? It'd be nice to get some clarity. So if you're listening, uh, send us the stock ticker and we will keep it anonymous and we could pull it up if you want. And if you have any additional questions, let's see question on China. Someone asks, are you looking at anything that is attractive overseas? Is the whole delisting thing something that was overblown because it seems that most people do not talk about it anymore? Seems like that happens in a lot of markets, right? What do you think about companies mm -hmm. like PDD and Baidu and the fierce bounce they have had so far? Yeah, I don't know anything about these things, really. I don't invest in China. I mean, there's like one company that I looked at in China. I don't think I would ever buy it and stuff, um, but I don't think it's a... Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the company or anything like that, but I, I don't understand those things. Uh, 
yeah, go ahead with this company. Yeah, this is, uh, I'll try to pronounce it, Pindu, Pindao something something. <laughs> Through his subsidiaries, operates an e-commerce platform in the People's Republic of China. It's a mobile platform that offers a range of products, including apparel, shoes, bags, mother and child care products, food and beverages, fresh produce, electronic appliances, and blah, blah, blah. And it's a large company. Um, this is in USD, so $130 billion market cap, $112 billion enterprise value. I've never heard of this company. Um, who does Timu? Uh, I have no idea what that is. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I don't um, uh, invest in China. And so, you know, I wouldn't invest in these companies because they're operating in China, don't know anything about China, don't know anything about, um, wouldn't know what companies are successful or not in terms of what they're doing. So I just, I mean, if, if Amazon wasn't in the country that I was in and I've never been to the United States and the other countries that Amazon operates in and stuff, then I wouldn't be able to invest in Amazon, you know? So it's hard to invest in a company that operates in other countries. Uh, hard to invest in retailers, hard to invest in tech things for me. So all that means that we, I wouldn't buy anything there. All right. So the last email we'll go over today. If you're looking at the screen, Jeff, and it looks familiar, it's because it's your email. Mm -hmm. You had said, I looked at some more after the last podcast and related to, in relation to airlines, and you attached two graphs, which we'll go over. You said operating expense ratio. Here means basically the same as operating ratio for a railroad, combined ratio for insurer. So the EBIT margin is the gap between 100 and this number. 85 means a 15% EBIT margin. 105% means a 5% EBIT loss. All airlines look cheap to me. Southwest is historically most predictable. Hawaiian Airlines may be the cheapest relative to its pre-COVID past. Other airlines I looked at all seem similarly priced about 50% cheaper than intrinsic value probably. And you had attached two graphs. So I'm curious mm -hmm. to hear what your thoughts are as a follow-up to last week's podcast when we talked about airlines and we could look at a few of them on the podcast mm -hmm. through QuickFS. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think it's important to look at any on QuickFS. After I did looking at it and stuff, I just think it's not, it's just not relevant. You don't have to look at individual airlines that way. Um, the things that I did was to look at the um, government data on the industry because I never looked at those sorts of things because airlines are just too big for us and we never invest in them. And uh, I was amazed by what I saw. I was amazed by what I saw that all airlines in the U.S. look very cheap versus what they were like before. And I was amazed at the a, a industry information that I was getting from the late 90s through today. Um, it was very positive, very, very positive. So, um, I mean, you can see there... That's, uh, you know, so that's the year by year operating expense ratio from 1995 to 2019. So before COVID, um, and in, in blue there, you have the industry one and then in red, you have Southwest. So what I did is it's a, it, this one's a little tougher on Southwest. I, I did this calculation myself. It's not calculated for you. Um, it's just a little, I, I did it in a way that's a little bit tougher for Southwest. I think their officially reported numbers will be better than this. Um, 
And the industry one is just the industry in aggregate. So it's the domestic industry in the United States. It, so it takes all airlines. It's not like just their biggest peers or something. But it's not um, It's not showing you like the median or something of a specific airline. So if American is 10 times bigger than some regional airline, then its weight in this is 10 times larger, right? It's the com combination of all of them. So it's like, uh, you know, um, yeah, at some points it's close to 100 companies included in this. And then later on it's less. Um so as you can see, the really only bad periods for the uh, ratio where you'd be losing money is the periods in which you had 9-11 and mm -hmm. the financial crisis. Yeah. And um, other than that, you had periods where you made some money and then now there's no gap between Southwest, now being before COVID, there's no gap between Southwest and the industry too. So they got down to levels that are pretty much similar to levels that Southwest operated at historically. And Southwest obviously was a very successful stock for a very long time. So, um, yeah, I was, I was amazed by what I saw. What are some other industry related things you saw when you were on the government website, learning about airlines? There, I mean, until 2019 or so, right before COVID, the uh, costs started to go up, but lower costs all the time. So, um, uh, doing a good job and having lower costs. So achieving higher profitability, even on the same in small volume gains. So it's kind of the opposite of what I was talking about with, with industries where there's a problem is where you see is where you only have years in which you have large revenue growth in that year is the only years where you have strong profitability here. You had strong profitability, even in years where there was virtually no growth. Um, so that was impressive. The number of carriers obviously going down all the time, but there's lots of other data that I looked at and it was all, all positive. Yeah. Um, so, you know, because if you think about it, you could look at the price to sales ratio, right, of these companies and see, you know, what should they trade in and everything. And um, for instance, if you thought that they're going to normally operate at a 90 uh, ratio, so like a 10% even margin, um, then you factor in taxes and all that and you might think, okay, they should trade at um, like maybe cheapish or, I mean, compared to today's market, but maybe fair priced at around 10, 10 times that number. So that would mean that, um, you know, that you'd be willing to pay, you know, one time sales and everything in the, in those cases. Um, and then if it was a 15% margin or 5% margin, then obviously that would change it depending on that. And you know, right before COVID, they were operating at around 15%. But what I, I noticed in looking at it is the extent to which it was disguised by 9-11 and the financial crisis was much greater than what I thought. So I know that they've been successful for a few years before COVID. Um, but until really looking at it, I didn't realize the extent to which actually the airline business has been better since the later 1990s to today. Um, and that it's heavily disguised by those two events causing a big declines and then COVID. So you've had September 11th, the financial crisis and COVID, which are all unlikely events to happen frequently. So how would you think about capital allocation at airline companies? Well, I think it'll be great at like Southwest and stuff eventually. I mean, I think they'll just buy back their stock. They're not now, but I don't see anything other, any other way that they can do anything. So, because someone had sent me an email on that. I responded in a long thing that I, I was going to do an article and then I decided, no, I don't want to do articles about like companies this big and everything. And, um, but basically what I said is, look, there's no, I can't come up with numbers for Southwest where they don't have to buy back huge amounts of stock. I, I kind of try to figure out how many planes it could take delivery of, even if they pay in cash for all that stuff and like even if they pay off all their debt they don't um roll over any debt over time and everything and you just get numbers that are too big i mean they should be doing like free cash flow that's 10 percent or more of their market cap in a few years and they already have 
as much cash as they could possibly need relative to debt and stuff like that. So I think um, maybe they could not do something for two years or something, but they just, at some point they have to buy back a lot of stock. Yeah. They were buying back stock before COVID. So they did historically haven't paid out much of a dividend, but they, they were buying back stock, but obviously um, they haven't since then. And so all these companies were buying back stock and I, they'll have to go back to that unless they have some other plan of what to do. Southwest is the most obvious that way because you know, what else could they possibly do in, in, um, you know, in, in that they're just a domestic airline and, and all that. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you that. I mean, what's like the long-term play for these businesses? Is it just continue to increase market share over time, buy back their stock, distribute the cash to shareholders? I don't think they'll increase market share. I don't think any of the big airlines will increase their market share. Um, I don't think they'll be allowed to buy anything. And occasionally other things will come up that could gain some market share in some places. I don't see how they would really gain market share over time. Um, so I think they're, they'll grow at about the rate of the passenger market in the U.S. domestically. Other airlines can maybe do other things, whether it's alliances or buying other things or whatever, because their systems might be more compatible overall. But Southwest isn't with other airlines. so um, Yeah, so I think they just have to buy back a lot of stock. I think they're in the position of the railroads. I mean, I think it's basically done. They're not going to be allowed to merge with anything else. They're not going to probably buy completely other things. Um, you know, if if the kind of thinking about how people think of financial markets and stuff changes, maybe eventually airlines will, you know, buy other stuff that aren't airlines and whatever. Um, but that's not the things that people look for now. You know, conglomerates and stuff aren't in vogue, so they'd be buying back their stock, basically. Um you know, they'll pay dividends, but I don't know that they could pay large dividends that people would have a lot of faith in. Mm -hmm. What about Hawaiian Holdings, a regional airline? So got a market cap of 568 million. It's the only one that stood out as being particularly cheap, uh, being cheaper than the others. They all looked about equally cheap. Um, I was amazed to the extent to which there seemed to be very little differentiation between any airlines. Like their pricing was very similar in terms of uh, the market seems to value them all the same way. Um, but Hawaiian does seem a lot cheaper if it can get back to where it was before. But it relies on, obviously, um, people from Japan as part of it because that's a big part of Hawaii, and that hasn't come back at all. And then also there would be their specific competitive market, right? So, like, they'd be much more affected by the actions of a competitor, whereas with Southwest, it's, you know, it's over a much larger base that's much more diversified and it's easier to figure out. So if it was to make as much money as possible, I guess you could say, well, would it make sense to buy Hawaiian? Is that the one worth the most upside? It might be. You know, just doing some math on it, it might be. But it's also like buying an insurer or something that's just in one state or in one niche thing as opposed to one that's more general, right? So you might have less uh, confidence that way. Is that a situation where you got to know a whole lot about Hawaiian or uh, Hawaii's economy, tourism, stuff like that, where... Southwest, for example, would just be more so general passenger information. Yeah. Um, I would say c competitive situation would be the one that would matter um, in, in terms of like whether their outcome will be different from others would be if they have actions taken by competitors and by them that are different from others. So uh, across the entire country, it's easier to predict, but obviously on specific routes and specific airports and stuff, sometimes there's real uh heavy competition, irrational competition that they lose money on some things and stuff. That's true for all the airlines. 
So, um, but averaged out over a whole country, it, you know, it's not a big deal. So this would just be one where I think the outcome is going to be more random. Mm-hmm. Would you rather own an airline or a situation like Six Flags? Oh, airline. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but like I said, none of them are the right size for us and stuff, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I I was really amazed. I've not seen any industry in the United States that's remotely as cheap as airlines. It was really remarkable to me because I did not realize that. I mean, beca- I guess because of how cheap they were before COVID, I don't think I appreciated that. And so when they got back to levels that were similar to what they had been before and everything, it, d- it didn't look that remarkable, you know? Um, but that really stood out. Do you think that's why Buffett invested in it in the airlines? It was a secular play, yeah. right? Industry play. Yeah. Yeah. If he was looking at the data that I was looking at and stuff, which I'm sure that's what he did. Um, that's what happened. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, it's, you know, that's why I use that ratio because if you think about it in terms of like, so what was Southwest's, um, uh, peak sales were, was it 2019? What was their highest year of sales? Yeah. 2019, 22.4 billion. Right. And so, I mean, there's some dilution stuff with Southwest and, but the market cap in EV is pretty much the same. I mean, whatever quick FS is, I'd say they don't, they already have all the cash they need and stuff. So there could be some dilution, but they could offset that easily. So market cap is basically what to go with the market cap being as low or lower than their prior peak in sales is incredible. So I, I didn't realize that, you know, we just looked at it. This is a company that on average has had, we can go back to the 1990s in a much tougher industry, right? When others sometimes had combined, uh, had, um, you know, these expense ratios that were at 105, 107, whatever they were operating at still a slight profit. So I would really compare it to things like insurance that way. It's as if these things were trading below book, as if you had a bunch of insurers that are making a lot of money trading below book. It's really remarkable that you have things that are trading below sales. I, that's the part that kind of shocked me when I looked at the long-term history, there's just not a case that I can see for why airlines should trade below their prior peak in sales. So, and you can go look at airline after airline and a lot of them are trading below their prior peak in sales, which is strange. So like their market cap should be, should not be below their highest year of sales. That just doesn't seem logical. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so we're at, um, $21 billion market cap today. The peak was peak of sales was in 2019 at 22.4. What multiple would you put on like a price of sales for an airline, like a normalized multiple? I mean, compared to other companies today, if it was priced the same way, you would have to think it's gotta be two times. Mm-hmm. You'd have to. Now, I wouldn't buy it at two times. I, I wouldn't touch it anywhere near that. But I just think if you were trying to price it so that it gets equal returns to the S&P 500 and stuff, it would have to be something like that. Now, something could go wrong where a lot of airlines get into a lot of competition and all sorts of problems compared to what they had before. It's a little harder to argue that with Southwest just because the predictability of it historically would mean that it would now have to kind of start underperforming the industry or something or the industry would have to get a lot worse even if it did. Southwest variation hasn't been that big. Um so, yeah, I, I would think so. I mean, also because there's fairly, I mean, there's very good free cash flow generation historically for these companies and stuff. And, um, yeah, they're, they're asset light 
for the most part. I mean, in that the sense of the assets turn heavily, you generate a lot of sales or and a lot of free cash flow versus your your assets that you have. Um, there's you know um, you get deferred revenue, right? So like the actual amount of owner money in it isn't as big as you think. Um, so yeah, um, I mean, I don't know that it'll ever get to a price like that. But certainly that would be a price that to equalize it with returns in other industries would seem likely if the recent results were what you would expect. Now, if you're expecting results that are much worse, like say the margins are going to be 10% instead of 15% or they're going to be 5%, instead, well, then you start to get into things where um, uh, where you know much lower prices would make sense, right? But it's hard because there's not much use for a lot more capital being put into it. There, there isn't any use for more capital being put into it. So like if they don't grow their market share and stuff much and we just have price increases over time, uh, you're not going to need to put in more capital into these businesses. So if they're not going to take more capital, then that also kind of makes it that it would make more sense to pay a higher price. So even if we get fairly low margins at times, um, now they're not good in a recession potentially if you have a big drop off in air travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about cycles, right? And it's an interesting example of like investing in stocks that are more cyclical. Um, so I'm kind of curious. I mean, for you though, if it's cheap, you think it's good just to purchase it in general, right? And not worry about if there's a recession or any of that, correct? Yeah. I also don't think it'll be hurt badly in a recession. Like, I mean, semiconductors down a lot in a recession. Airlines, I don't think so this time. So not this time. They might be down a little, but yeah. I mean, they're only down in 2000 because it's a 9-11. Mm-hmm. And if nine, a 9-11 event happened again, it wouldn't have as much impact on the industry because that was a one-time occurrence that had a huge change in how everything worked sure. in terms of security and all of that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, same thing if there was another pandemic. It wouldn't cause the same shutdown in air travel and stuff. It would be handled differently. So I, I don't see those as uh, likely to, even if they happened again, I don't think that they'd be likely to cause the same declines in the industry. Yeah. Um, now they're giant companies, they're very volatile stocks and they are, um, very subject to oversight by the government and a lot of, uh, government policy risk and things like that to it. Why do you think they are so volatile? Is it just because they're so tradable? So companies and funds are doing all their like long, short stuff. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's one of these things I just don't know. I, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's something I didn't understand when looking at it. Why would the stocks be this volatile? Mm-hmm. It doesn't show up much in the data. I mean, I got to be honest. Like the the volatility in the stock thing seems fairly unrelated to the volatility in the results to some extent. Um, but we talk about movie theaters that way, which there's fairly heavy volatility in a lot of them for reasons that aren't clear. I mean, a recession in movie theaters will have little effect, and yet you saw movie theater stocks like Cinemark and stuff went flying up when they're uh, in a month in which there was less expectation for recession and more expectation for lower rates and stuff and was not doing well when the situation was reversed. And so I, I think that's mostly what that was about, but it, the economy has very little effect on the movie theaters. I mean, it has some effect on financing, but also these airlines, I mean, certainly Southwest and stuff doesn't need any financing, so that doesn't make any sense. Um, I mean, a lot of beta stuff could have to do with credit things if they're seen as high credit risk. Southwest is rated a bit lower. Um, 
Southwest is rated a bit lower by the credit rating agencies than I think is kind of warranted. I think they're kind of being penalized just for being an airline because I looked at that to have some idea of what they would rate them and stuff because I try to figure out like, well, what their capital allocation policy be. They want to be a rated investment grade. They're not going to take anything that would have them not be. Um, so you kind of had to look at what they were saying. And then they also, some of the rating agencies gave some predictions of what they thought cash flows would be and stuff. Um, so... I, I, so that doesn't explain the volatility to me either. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is this is a simple answer? And yet, like you have something like insurance, which is highly cyclical, and yet the volatility in that is much lower. Yeah, and um, the stocks for sure. This to me looks exactly like insurance now. I mean, the the airline industry looks like the insurance industry, generally. Um, yeah. And why is that? Because like how you think about like with the operating ratio, expense ratio. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's why I did it, because I started to look at it and realize the similarities. Um, because I, I realized the degree to which the I was, I think that the cycles in it were unrelated to macroeconomics. I mean, it was related in the financial crisis, but that it was um, a cyclical issues that I think um, were trying to, I was trying to figure out the difference between events that happened in the world and actions taken in the industry. And I realized the extent to which there were events happening in the world that were driving um, not as good results for certain years and a sense of cyclicality that I don't think exists in the underlying industry. So when investing in cyclical stocks, is there anything in particular that you tend to like think about? Right. So people they make or investors, they make mistakes investing in cyclical stocks uh, really for two reasons. Right. They, They think the stock is cheap when it's expensive. Um, or they right. think that it's a high quality business when it's actually low quality. And a lot of that has to deal with the cycle right. of the industry. So is there anything in particular that you tend to think about or a good way that investors should look at companies that have that more cyclicality to, uh, either their business or the industry in general? Yeah. So, um, financial risk which is like leverage and things like that that people talk about, but mainly it's like cash conversion and what kinds of assets you'd have and stuff. So on this score, that's the reason why airlines looked really interesting to me. Like, well, like I said, I think the, I think Southwest as a credit is much stronger than it appears. I mean, in terms of what it owns, in terms of the free cash flow generation that would have and stuff, compared to other cyclical industries, there's a lot less risk, uh, financial risk. Like when we're talking about semiconductors, semiconductors are much riskier financially than, than airlines, I think now. Um, so that's one, the other one is, um, related to that is like the cash flow generation, right? So you want to have consistent free cash flow generation is very helpful and not have cash, uh, needing to not, not burning cash or something like that. Um, and that's a very big part of it. And then the other part is, um, I would also look at the operating leverage, which is why I use that, the ratio that I did. Um, because I think that's very helpful in understanding it. Um, so the, the re so that's what we talk about with insurance railroads. And I think airlines, it makes sense. Um, cause it has a few factors. One, I also separate out the, I didn't show a graph of this, but separating expense and revenue separately. So seeing what expense growth was each year, seeing what, um, cost growth was and the two aren't necessarily that closely related so that's a big issue with where you see the cyclicality and stuff is in periods in which revenue growth is stronger than cost growth is when it looks like airlines are doing really well and then the reverse but it doesn't really matter that much in terms of your long-term investment in the 
in the company. So what I looked at is the three-year average, which is what I always do with with any of these things. Um, it's what I do with an insurer. It's what I do with anything. It's like, what's your three-year average ratio that way? And, um, you know, for some of these, it's, it's pretty good mm-hmm. that the, the variation is low. Like, honestly... I mean, there's different numbers that pop up for Southwest for some things, but over a long period of time from the nineties to today, the amount of money that they make per, um, dollar that they bring in doesn't vary all that much. They operate at a fairly consistent ratio of, um, like their cost ratio is, is very consistent compared to a lot of industries. So, and that's all that I worried about because, you know, I mean, I'm not worried with airlines about what the actual demand is or that demand could be pulled forward or something like that. I mean, that's also part of it. There's um, the good and bad part of the industry. The reason why it was interesting to me, right, is that the the seats expire, right? So, like, there's no inventory. Um, so the bad thing about it from a pricing perspective, of course, is that the it makes sense to price the last seat um, at a dollar instead, um, instead of not having a, a full airplane but because otherwise there's you know you still have the cost and you don't get any benefit from it but the other side of it is that compared to certain industries it's much more predictable um similar to hotels for instance um how it's doing in terms of um demand and all that because you can look and see what the capacity is and see um how many people might be might be flying and all that and that there's not like any built up inventory anywhere that's hiding there that you can't see. Right. So like if people want to fly in, um, 2023 or 2024 or whatever, they have to buy and, and fly in those years. And we have some ideas for capacity and all that. There's no way for them really to, um, pull that forward or use it up and everything in some sort of way. There's, it's just doesn't have a life to it. The asset, it's much riskier if you're in some sort of cyclical industry in which the asset has a lot of life to it. Right. Um, or if someone's carrying a lot of inventories, and those are two of the potential problems. So uh, you're very close to like final demand, which is what I liked about it, looking at the industry. Um, so that that's makes it much easier, I think, to predict what um, demand would normally look like. And I don't think that it's, I think at this point, it's probably pretty easy to predict demand normally, what like normal demand should look like, not what it'll look like in any given year. You'd need to know the macroeconomic situation for that. But I just don't think that's very hard to figure out each year how many um, people will be flying and what prices would be and stuff like that in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you look, I have the 20-year cash flow statement up and they burned cash, looks like two years, 2008 and 2020. And really 2008, it looked like a uh, a working capital thing. I mean, they still generated net income in uh, 2008. But really, other than that, I mean, it's been a pretty good business from like a cash flow generation perspective yeah it's really good that way and um it is true if if um bookings drop off a lot that they'll consume cash airlines now because they have so much in terms of um uh like the deferred revenue and stuff so you have prepaid things for tickets and stuff but you also have like points and all of that and so it doesn't get refilled at the same rate as it was before if you have a big drop off you know so that's kind of similar to some other industries like, like advertising. The same thing is that obviously if they grow a little bit all the time, you'll always have a benefit to free cash flow. but this is a more cyclical industry. And so when you have a huge downturn, it will use up cash in that year that it does. Cause your other items in your working capital, your, your negative, you know, your working liabilities portion of it is going to go the wrong way. So, I mean, you did say if you were managing 10 billion and up, 
or focusing on larger companies, Southwest would probably be in your portfolio. Yeah, I mean, if I was managing a huge fund, after looking at this, I was like, maybe at a lot of airlines, it would be full of airlines. Maybe airlines would be the biggest thing. Um, probably would be. Really? I can't find any other industry for a really big company. Yeah, I can't find any other industry for really big companies where they're cheap. It's very hard to find any cheap stocks. Mm-hmm. And so to find things that look, I mean, using conservative sorts of estimates and just using like, so let's see, let's use, so market cap of Southwest, it says is what right 21. now? $21.1 Okay, and the peak we said in sales was 2019? Yeah, at 22.4. Okay. And so how much inflation have we had, you know, since 2019, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're saying, okay, and, and we're saying, so it's off. All we're saying is, let's say that sales on average in future years are going to average at the rate that they were back then. Um, and then we'll kind of say that, so it's like real in that sense. But so they're going to be back at the levels of, of 2019. Um, then the question is like, how much do we think the margin will be? So let's think about it that way. Let's say if it's to be priced like other stocks and stuff, then we'd probably say like 15 times earnings or something like that, right? So to do it that way, and then you say they'd probably pay about 25% tax rate or something, you know? Mm-hmm. So to do it that way, you're going to need to have um, a number that's in the low um, pre-tax profit that's in the low double digits, right? So exactly what it is, but maybe probably for an airline or something, you might go like with the way stocks are priced now, you might say, okay, a fair price would be like 12 times their pre-tax profit or something like that. Right? So at sales, if it was, if they're you're expecting an 8% margin, which actually wouldn't be quite as good as Southwest margin we saw on average has been, then it should be priced at one time sales. And this is sales from a few years ago that we're going back to, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, uh, that was pretty interesting. Um, yeah. So, and then I was trying to think about what, what things would people be worried about that they think is going to be different now than in the past. So, um, obviously they did really well for a few years before COVID. You can see that all these airlines did. In fact, some that aren't Southwest did even better and their improvement was a lot better, but you can go through the margin of the last, when did it start that they got a lot better? Would you say, was it 2013, 2014? Yeah, I would say it's, I mean, really 2012, 2013, and then with 2013 onward, it just, yeah, that era, 2013, 2014. So what was the margin in those years? Operating margin. In 2012, it was 4.7 jumped to 7.7 in 2013 and then jumped to 12.6 in 2014 and then jumped to 21% in 2015. Uh, and then it kind of went down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And like I said, if you just go to airline after airline, you see the same pattern. I mean, we can look at American Delta, um, you know, any of those things and you'll see similar years in terms of what the pattern looks what like. What was going on? Yeah. Cause you're right. I mean, you look at American airlines and it's basically the same thing. Well, that's what's fascinating about it. So when you break it down, like I said, in terms of revenue and cost, it was amazing what was happening, how well they were doing with cost out of the financial crisis. So all that had to happen is revenue had to come up. Now we could look at what revenue went up each of these years, um, but revenue growth was so bad in the first years of the financial crisis that it wasn't obvious. But I mean, I mean, the cost growth was like nothing. Like I went through looking at estimates of this stuff and it was amazing. I mean, in terms of nominal cost growth, not even in terms of real cost growth, real costs were coming down all the time. Um, and so it, it was, it, yeah. I mean, then it's just a question of when revenue comes back that um, you'll have better results.
do you think airlines um will be a situation where they took costs out of their business because they were forced to through covid so actually operating margins will be better if they reach pre-covid revenue no unfortunately i don't i think that it covid made things worse um I think that they'll be it'll be harder for labor things it'll be harder mm-hmm. um I think that there's more um it, they'll be more stressed in a lot of different ways um yeah so I I think they would have been better if covid didn't happen in terms of the pattern that they would have had um also the economy just running a bit like too hot for them ideally is what they had in the last years before covid especially a few years you know like let's say 2018 or something um you didn't have a lot of wage growth and all of that kind of stuff. Now they've got a lot more pressure on those kinds of things. There, there's a lot of stuff to an airline that isn't fuel. And there's a lot of stuff to an airline that isn't even really stuff that ha- goes on in the plane about the operations on the ground and everything. And um, it's a very labor intensive mm-hmm. and it's all unionized, of course. Um, and uh, I think that that is, um, they they'd be better off if they if it was easier to hire people, I think. Yeah. So you said that if you ran a larger fund, you would probably own multiple airlines. Are, would you approach it very much like how Buffett did and just own all of them, or would you focus in on Southwest? He had to, you know. I mean, you don't have to. I don't know that there's much benefit from owning other airlines besides Southwest, for instance. Um, like I think you get most of the diversification and stuff that way. And I can't think of many issues that would be specific to one airline and not the others in the long run. Historically, there hasn't been from adverse publicity, safety things, whatever, hasn't really affected major airlines in terms of the public being willing to fly them. So uh, I I don't just don't see what would be different about one airline versus another necessarily. And I do think the Southwest is more domestic focused and generally historically in the past had better uh, credit situation. So it would be a little bit like more certain. I don't know that it would do better as a stock, but it would be a little bit more certain, I think, um, than some of the others. So, um, but you could buy a bunch of different ones. I don't think it really benefits you that much to buy a bunch of different ones. Buffett had to do it because of size, but you could certainly do it. And if you had a big fund and stuff, you could do it. It's also not much of a benefit to people certainly don't listen to this podcast in terms of liquidity stuff because all of them trade so much. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of flip a coin. Do you want to invest in one of them or do you want to invest in all of them? Um, I don't know that there'll be a big difference between one or the other. I don't know that you get a lot of advanced diversification helps that much by buying four of them instead of one of them. I'm not sure that it does, but then on the other hand, I'm not sure that selecting one instead of four makes a big difference in terms of returns. Now it did in the past. I mean, owning Southwest versus a lot of other things obviously made it sense. Southwest, I mean, we also have to keep in mind, like, if you look at Southwest, uh, they've outperformed the S&P 500 over a long period of time, and that's not their stronger period. So if you look at, like, um, if you go to, well, try the all one, because it'll be the early 90s probably it goes back to. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, okay. So, oh, I see what you're doing. Okay. Uh, but I, what I was going to say is that Southwest, even at not an expensive price, had outperformed the S&P 500, and that's the weaker portion by far of Southwest's history mm-hmm. from the 90s. So like Southwest's performance before the early 90s is much, much better as a stock than its performance after. And yet even then, and being at a fairly cheap price now versus the S&P at a very high price, um, Southwest still outperformed. It destroyed it. And it outperformed with... Yeah. And it outperformed with... Um, you know, September 11th, uh, 
financial crisis and then you know covid covid especially having a much bigger impact on the airlines than mm-hmm. the s&p 500 so um and as you can see the other airlines at this point now have operations that look like southwest mm-hmm. in terms of what we talked about with the ratios and stuff the industry basically southwest hasn't changed that much over time um the, the industry has changed to be more like the levels that we talked about with southwest um yeah i wanted to look at compare um, all of the major airlines sure. just to see like, is it even worth, you know, buying all of them together? Is it better just to buy one of them? Um, I typed in, you know, there's love and then UAL and American airlines. And I guess if we look at like a five year, mm-hmm. let's see what it looks like on a five year basis. Yeah. They all kind of tread kind of close to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And try, try like, try like two years and one year. So you can get an idea of what I I mean. Um, so you got two years. and what's remarkable is, yeah, that's that's a, that's pretty tough yeah. um, in terms of how close the moves are on everything that way. And but what's really remarkable to me is how similar the pricing is. Like when I looked to see, it's as if you could go from one to the next, to the next in quick FS in terms of how similar they were in price um, versus their previous sales and stuff. So these definitely seem to be all priced the same off of price to sales. Mm-hmm. Um, so I honestly, I think it makes like little difference if you want to buy the four biggest airlines in equal amount, or you want to buy just Southwest, I think you'll probably have a pretty similar outcome. I would have more faith in buying just Southwest in like what the outcome will be, but I don't know that that certainty is not going to be offset by some more positive outcome for another stock that isn't Southwest in that group. Right. So it could be, um, is there a management team that you like more out of all of them? Like the culture at Southwest, is that better than the other airlines? Mm. It used to be a lot better, but it's gotten, I think Southwest has deteriorated a lot over um, the last 30 years or so slowly. And uh, just, it's become more like other airlines and the other airlines have gotten a lot better. Mm -hmm. Um, So. Interesting. Well, there you go. Yeah. And and obviously Buffett stock and when was Buffett buying $55 a share or something? Basically Southwest, this it's the same stock and stuff. There isn't much difference in terms of shares outstanding with Buffett was investing in the stock now. And I think Buffett would have probably been buying in the, we don't know the exact number, but I would guess he paid $55 a share or something for his um, stock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're probably right. It's up there. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the focus compounding podcast. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, uh, be sure to check out all of our content on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff. If you're watching on the screen right now, you can follow me on Twitter at, at @focuscompound. Uh, it's the best place to get everything that we put out into the investing universe. And of course, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching us right now. That goes a very long way for us. I thank everybody so much for tuning in, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.